Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 12th, 2018. This is episode 2344 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Wednesday, so it's interview day. I have a guy right out of our community. His name is Ryan Llewellyn. He is the uh, co-owner and operator of a company called Red Dragon Herbs. They make primarily teas. Ryan developed his passion for teas traveling the world. He traveled all over the world quite literally and sampled tea uh, in fine tea rooms, in, in people's homes, and over campfires, uh, cooked over camel dung. Yep, even that. We'll talk about that today. What we're really going to talk about today, a little bit on tea, but more on selling value-added products, getting into craft shows, farmer's markets, and how to build a business as a side hustle and hopefully at some point take it on to a full-time concern. That's what Ryan is working to do, and he's been doing now. Again, he's had Red Dragon Herbs in business for three years. So this isn't one of those businesses that started yesterday and really ain't a business yet. Uh, I will tell you this, too. Um, if you listen to the show right away, like as soon as it came out, you may beat, beat me to it. I have to do some updates in the MSB today. But I did talk to, to Ryan. I do have a discount for members of the MSB on Ryan's teas, including uh, Jack's Morning Blend Tea. He actually has my particularly blended tea. We'll talk about that today, too. Uh, on his web store, and you can get that there. And his tea sells for seven bucks a pouch, and you get free shipping with orders over twenty-five bucks. And I got you guys a fifteen percent discount. So you know it's kind of that time of year. He's right out of the community. Consider maybe picking some up, some different teas, giving them a shot, maybe giving a few as gifts. Uh, hopefully, we'll create a problem, and some of you won't get your stuff by Christmas for him. I'd like to be able to do that for a guy in the community, overwhelm him just a little bit, kind of a. Uh, Christmas present to Ryan from the community, if we can do that, would be awesome. And I think when you hear today's show, you'll feel maybe even more that way, because he's really going to give you all of the things they've done to actually build their business, the combination of offline and online activities, the concept of building a business with a value-added value model, not trying to always be the primary producer of things, stuff like that. We'll hear from Ryan in just a bit on that. Before we get right on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Been with us over nine years now, nine years of sponsoring the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. They have everything for, for your prepping needs from the practical to the tactical, guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at Safe Castle Royal at safecastle.com. And they have a discount buyers program. This is pretty cool. Uh, people pay uh, $29 a year for this, this membership, and it gives you basically discounts on almost everything that Safe Castle sells, and some pretty damn good discounts. MSB members get that membership, a lifetime membership for free. You can't even buy that membership as a lifetime membership anymore. They stopped doing that. They started with an annual model. <coughs> um, but you can get it completely for free as a supporter of this show by being a member of the MSB. So... Great supporter of the show, long-time supporter of the show. Uh, definitely worth checking out if you haven't yet. Voice is uh, giving out there a little bit. Maybe I need to be drinking some of my own tea right now. Uh, anyway, next up, sponsor of the day number two today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. I just wanted to remind you guys, I, I, I noted this Monday, uh, Jeff wrote in to me, Berkey is raising prices through all their channels. It's either January 14th or 19th. It, it slows, but somewhere mid-January. 
And Berkey runs a very tight distribution channel. They limit their number of distributors. They limit how how much they can be discounted. They take care of their channel and make sure that like one guy isn't peeing in the pool and ruining it for everybody else. And they'll cut a distributor that breaks the rules. They're also good about notifying their distributors well in advance when they're making changes or allowing them to do sales or doing incentives. So like all companies dealing with inflation at times, you have to raise prices. So they are going up uh, significantly uh, in January. So it would be a good time to get your orders in now before the price increase. And if you're going to buy anything Berkey, why would you go anywhere than Jeff the Berkey guy? Gleason, another guy that's been sponsoring us over seven years. Uh, the loyalty of my sponsors amazes me, really. Uh, good guys take care of the community. Jeff's a maniac at customer service, and he has other things for your prepping needs. You'll find it all at his website, directive21.com. You don't spell out 21, it's directive21.com. Check him out today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. That brings us to our Day in History segment today. Um, only going back to 1980, I remember 1980, not really super well. I was a little kid. I was in like first grade or something like that. Um, probably in Catholic school trying to figure out how to get myself kicked out the first time, honestly, and successfully doing it a couple years later. Uh, anyway, um, I definitely wasn't paying attention to stuff like what we're going to talk about happened this day, December 12th, 1980. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, one of his notebooks, sold for over $5 million on this day. In 1980, oil tycoon Armand Hammer paid $5.126 million at auction for a notebook containing the writings of legendary artist Leonardo da Vinci. The manuscript was written around 1508. It was one of 30 similar books da Vinci produced during his lifetime on a variety of subjects. This book contains 72 loose pages featuring some 300 notes and detailed drawings, all relating to the common theme of water and how it moved. Experts have said that da Vinci drew on it uh, to paint the background of his masterwork, The Mona Lisa, The text was written in brown ink and chalk, read right to left, an example of da Vinci's favored mirrored writing technique. Um, it, the, the, the article on History Channel kind of bounces around where, where this thing went, but I think the most interesting thing is what happened to it um, after uh, Hammer bought it. Uh, he was the president of Occidental Petroleum Company, renamed his prize the Hammer Codex, and added it to his collection of art. When Hammer died in 1990, he left a notebook to, and other works to the Armand Hammer Museum of Art and Cultural Centers at the University of California at Los Angeles. Uh, several years later, the museum offered the manuscript for sale, saying it was forced to take this action to cover legal costs incurred when the niece and her sole heir of Hammer's late wife, uh, Francis, sued the estate, claiming Hammer had cheated the Francis out of the rightful share of his fortune. On November 11, 1994, Hammer Codex was sold to an anonymous bidder, soon identified as Bill Gates, the billionaire founder of Microsoft, at a New York auction, uh, oxygen, a New York auction for a new record high of $30.8 million. Not some bad appreciation there. Gates restored the title of Lecaster Codex and has since loaned the manuscript to a number of museums for public display. And I'm sure one of his heirs will sue and cause it to be sold again sometime in the future. seems that rich families always want more of what's left to them than uh, whatever is left to them. just seems that way to me. No big lessons from that, just an interesting segment on history today. Uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting is Da Vinci's Mona Lisa uh, actually was stole from the Louvre Museum at one point, and it was recovered in 1913 
also on the same day that uh, Armin Hammer uh, spent $5.1 million to buy his notebook, but just quite a few years earlier. We also know something else that happened in 1913, but let's not go down that road. Let's talk about happier things. On that note, I want to bring my uh, special guest on, Ryan Llewellyn. Again, co-owner along with his wife Mary of Red Dragon Herbs, a loose-leaf tea business centered in Des Moines, Iowa, built right out of the TSP community, uh, and proud purveyor of not just a bunch of really great herbal teas, but even Jack's Morning Blend. I gave my blessing on that, and uh, I don't think any kind of royalty on it or anything, but yeah, he makes exactly the blend that I make, and you can find it on his website. Again, I did get you guys a discount. Uh, if it's not in the MSB this second, it will be before close of business today, which of course is the 12th. And with that, hey, Ryan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, man, we got you on today to talk about a bunch of stuff. You're, you're making tea, you're in farmer's markets, you're doing value-added business. But mm -hmm. you know me and you know the show because you listen. I like to get people connected with the audience. So let's, let's push that out for just a second and let's do the kind of elevator who are you thing and, and go back to, like, I don't know, high school and you're spacing out in your senior <laughs> year and, it's, and study hall or something and trying to figure out what you do with your life and, and how does that lead you to where you are today, kind of, you know, professionally and personally and what have you. Yeah, I suppose I can kind of tie all that together from back then, but I've always been interested in the world. And I remember, I think it was maybe like my fifth birthday, I got a globe for a gift and I would just spend hours staring at this thing and thinking about all these places. And it got me into things like history, um, geography, culture of the world, and just kind of generally how things are in other places. And, you know, mind you, this is from a, a bedroom in Iowa, so pretty much everywhere is exotic. Hmm. But I would pretty much read or watch anything I possibly could about foreign places. Um, you know, maybe the school library or the uh, partial collection of encyclopedias that every middle class family had at the time, you know, A through H or whatever. And this interest carried pretty much all the way through my childhood. And when I graduated high school, I joined the Marine Corps Reserve, and that would have been in 1999, and spent a few years after that, um, you know, just kind of working dead-end jobs and getting C's in community college, drinking beer, kind of the normal post-adolescent things. And then 9-11 happened, and, you know, the subsequent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I got deployed to a, a small town in Iraq that was just south of Baghdad. It was kind of a rough area. But it was a little um, kind of an agricultural area, too. And our job as a Marine Corps infantryman was to patrol that city on foot. And for me, that was a very interesting experience because I got to see this kind of forbidden culture up close and personal. So we would go through the marketplace, um, go to schools, people's homes and whatnot. And one thing that I thought was kind of funny that would always happen No matter where we would go, people would always serve tea to us. And the tea was a little bit different than what I was used to. Um, you know, I mean, typically bag of Lipton and a mug, but over there, it was kind of a spicy tea. Um, I didn't know what the spice was at the time, but it was like, you know, cardamom, um, lots of sugar served in little Turkish glasses. And it just, it didn't matter where we were at. If we were in the home of a prominent sheik in the town or, You know, even I remembered a bunch of poor laborers heating up a tea kettle over uh, dried cow dung, uh, a fire with that. You know, it, it didn't matter. Just everybody served tea. 
and we got a little shameless with it. Um, <laughs> sometimes we would just kind of stop by people's homes and pretend we were there on official business, like say, hey, we have to search your house. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. Let's go we, get you know, some tea. Yeah, pretty much. You know, it's like, hey, we've been walking for a while. Um, you know, it'd be nice about it. And then lo and behold, a couple minutes later, yeah, we'd have some tea and sometimes some bread. And so I just thought it was kind of cool, you know, to be able to sit in these people's homes and, you know, chat with them as much as we could and have tea with them. And tea kind of got to be a thing and really hot beverages in general that um, was kind of very comforting. You know, like we were over there during the winter. So, you know, I wouldn't really get too cold, but, you know, it felt kind of cold at the time. And, you know, it's kind of nice to stop and have a warm little pick me up like that. So. I think I left there with a little bit of an appreciation for that kind of thing. And then when I got back and came home, I pretty much told the Marine Corps, it's not you, it's me, and was done with that and started to work at my current job, which is at a tire factory right now. And, you know, that's where I've been for the past um, almost 15 years, I guess, at this point. But um, I settled down a little bit and kind of became a little bit more mature, I think, and I did a lot of traveling as much as I could, you know, every time I'd get a week off, um, you know, try to go to some exotic place in the world. And every time I would go somewhere, I would make a point to uh, take part in their hot beverage culture, you know, be it um, turkey, like apple tea in Turkey or kind of a, a fine tea time in England or yerba mate in Argentina. And I got interested in some other things too, like health and fitness. And then eventually, I guess you would say like urban homesteading, mm-hmm. maybe where um, I'd grow a, a lot of things in my yard, but a lot of herbs. And one thing I would do with these is um, I would make tea blends out of them. And, you know, I'd grow things like catnip, peppermint, lemon balm, lemon basil, lemongrass, uh, borage, and. Um, it, mainly, I would drink these teas at night, and I worked a night shift job at the time. And sometimes on my days off, I would try to um, get to bed a little bit earlier than I normally would. So, you know, things like peppermint, chamomile would be what I'd go for to, um, I guess, kind of try to medicate myself a little bit to to put me out. And that became, I guess, just kind of a ritual of mine, you know, going out on the back deck and maybe listening to some music or a podcast or whatnot or staring off in the space or whatever and having a cup of herbal tea. And then I guess a few years later, um, well, my now wife, uh, we had a baby and um, I had a work schedule change, actually, that uh, put me into kind of a normal Monday through Friday, eight hour shift kind of thing. And that made it so my wife would have had to quit her job at a uh, kind of a fancy restaurant. And we decided one way we would try to uh, make up the income and kind of become one of these one and a half income families would be to start a business. And figuring that while she was home with the with the kid, she would be able to use some of these spare hours and, um, you know, put in a little bit of work and maybe would have something to sell. It didn't quite work out that way, but uh, – you know, we definitely went down that business route, and I figured tea, um, especially herbal tea, was the right choice because that's the confluence of a lot of different interests of mine. And so we jumped right into that, and we are now currently, well, wrapping up our third year of doing awesome. this. And um, yeah, in the meantime, um, you know, I'm still working my full time job, and uh, 
We've done a lot of different farmers markets in the area, a lot of different vendor shows, craft shows, um, take part in a co-op and kind of fumbling our way through e-commerce as well too right now. Very cool. Very cool. So let's just then talk before we get into the business side of it. Mm-hmm. How do you, after all of that travel and all those different teas and watching people make it over, you know, burnt camel dung or whatever, <laughs> how do you, how do you make your cup of tea? Um, well, it's really easy. And it's kind of funny because sometimes when we hear people talk at farmers markets, they're kind of intimidated about making a cup of tea. But, um, you, you know, really peasant farmers in Bangladesh that, you know, don't really have a pot to piss and they can make a, a cup of tea, you know, so you don't need anything fancy. Um, pretty much all you need is something to strain. And normally what I use, it's just kind of a simple, um, ball, uh, I guess I, don't even know what you'd call it, just like a ball with a little hinge. It's about the size of a small spoon. And I would bring a cup of water up to a boil. Um, we have an electric kettle on hand, and that's pretty convenient for these kind of things. But, uh, you know, even just microwaving a cup of water for about two minutes or so does the trick. And I put a little bit more than a teaspoon inside that tea bowl. Um, a big thing that people do sometimes that causes problems is they fill whatever it is that's their strainer too full. And that doesn't allow the water to really circulate through and um, expand as much as it should. So that's kind of one thing that people do wrong a lot. So I put just a little bit more than a teaspoon in there and let it sit for five minutes. And usually by the time it cools down, you've got a good cup of tea. And that's for herbal teas, of course. Sure. Sure. You know, I it's funny. Um, I'm a fan of the show Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds like it's not related, but it is. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, the one in the main character, Sheldon, he's always, you know, whenever anybody was disappointed, he says, uh, you know, would you like a would you like a cup of tea? And it's 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 not because he actually cares; it's because he's like a protocol guy and like so yeah. offer someone when they're upset a hot beverage, right? And <laughs> so he was all bummed out about something in the latest episode, and uh, his wife goes, "Well, do you want a cup of tea?" He goes, "I'm rethinking tea. I've decided it's just <laughs> leaf soup." Other <laughs> guys like, well, you know, he's kind of got a point there, and I, I it, you know, I, I think he's wonderful. You know, I, I am a huge tea drinker myself, but in the end, like, let's not make this complicated. You steep stuff in hot water, and a lot of teas throughout the world. The reason it's so ambiguous is that in a lot of the world, especially you know today, still, but a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. if you drank water without boiling it. You were taking your life literally into your your mouth, oh, yeah. right? You could kill yourself. So you needed like tepid water doesn't taste real good. So you needed something to make it like well, once we boil this stuff, it's gonna taste like hot, crappy water. So how can we make it taste good? And then I think it's where it came from. But then I think people like you were talking about like certain herbs do help you go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And while it tastes like gym socks, you throw a little red valerian in there, and yeah, it, you're out. Um, <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of other things like, you know, something with like a pine or rosemary will help open the nose. Peppermint mm-hmm. does that too. And there's just tons of health benefits, whether it's addressing a problem or more tonifying that comes from tea. And I think that's, that's part of why it's, it's everywhere. And I think the other thing is like you mentioned Turkey, like there's a lot of the world where, you know, alcohol is illegal in, in the Muslim yeah. community, right? So like tea is something everybody everywhere can drink. And even certain people that have like certain prohibitions in their their faith against uh, caffeine, for instance, uh, Latter Day Saints folks will not drink 
um, you know, like a, a typical com 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 whatever it is, tea. Because um, mm -hmm. it's got caffeine, but they can drink an herbal tea. So I think, like, it's that thing that everybody everywhere in the world can drink in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah, that is true. And one thing, um, kind of going back to the water quality issue, and that's when the theories uh, why tea has become so popular in the world, you know, especially China back then when it was crowded, is that tea has a little bit of an antimicrobial anti uh, property to it. So not only are you boiling the water and killing everything, you're adding a little bit extra to sure. it too that makes the quality a little better. And um, I guess kind of going back to my time in Iraq, um, I didn't really think too much of it at the time, but uh, yeah, the water quality there was terrible. Yeah, you know, and like you know, I just never really saw people drink a glass of water, and um, you know, I kind of figure, hey, it's hot here, I'd rather have water than hot tea. But yeah, that's that's part of the reason why. Yeah, definitely. And, and like, you're right when you talk about that. Like, when I started studying herbs, and I got really into it almost 20 years ago now, and I, I actually took some courses and some other things and got really deep into it, studied all 60 herbal actions and stuff like that. And then I, I became fascinated with, like, so rosemary is an antibiotic and an antimicrobial and an antiviral and an antifungal. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> you're like, like what rosemary and oregano is too, and you know it's it's like you said it's small concentrations, but almost all these herbs have something like that. Some even have some analogs to you know certain antibiotics as well that we use as medicine. And beer has kind of that history too, with like the earliest beers had small doses of tetracycline in them because of the hmm. way they were made. And I think a lot of things that have followed man throughout history, they they have that kind of. The people didn't know what, why it made you not get sick or get better. They had no idea. They came up with all kinds of mythology and stuff like that. But they knew that it did that or it didn't make you die, one or the other. So they kept doing it. And so they were right, but they didn't know why they were right, I guess, which probably we have a lot of stuff like that today still. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever works, works, you know. So, <laughs> so let's chat about the differences between some teas. Now, I mean, we've got herbal, we've got green, mm -hmm. we've got black, we got oolong, we got white, <laughs> etc. Walk us through some of the differences in in, in these different uh, options that we have in the world of tea. Um, I guess uh, first we'll say, and this is kind of a technical note, but um, there's a difference between like tea is a specific plant. The uh, Camellia uh, sinensis plant. Um, it's that's the plant that white tea, black tea, um, green tea, yellow tea comes from. And then herbal tea is technically not tea, but um, pretty much if anyone corrects you on that, they're just kind of being an asshole about it. To be <laughs> honest, you know. Um, so like you know, we would say like in our business, like yes, this is like a peppermint tea or chamomile tea or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there is technically a difference. I think the correct term would be like a tisane or, you know, sometimes like an infusion. But, um, but yeah, there's different, um, types of, or well, I guess with the Camellia sinensis plant, there's different things that you can do with it to get green tea, black tea. Um, now green tea, what it is, uh, basically they, they pick the buds and the leaves and they just let it wilt just a little bit. And then they dry it right away. And they do this. There's a whole bunch of different methods. Um, kind of the more traditional one would be to pan fry it, like put it in a big wok or something. And what that does is that stops the oxidation process. 
And then from there, they roll it and um, then let it dry some more. Then you've got green tea. And that makes green tea a little bit more um, vegetal, I guess you would say. Um, you know, kind of that more green flavor compared to black tea. And then what black tea is, is they pick the leaves and they let them sit out and wilt a lot longer. Um, you know, talking about a day compared to, say, like an hour or two for green tea. Uh, green tea. And then they, they roll them, which kind of bruises them up a little bit. And that starts the oxid, oxidize, ah, excuse me, oxidize, oxidization process. And that's what turns it black, basically. So, um, you know, if you think about like an apple core, how if that sits out a little bit and starts to go brown or a banana peel that gets stepped on or whatever and starts to go black, pretty much the same thing. So they let that happen with the tea, and once it goes completely black, um, you know they they dry it out and it's rolled. There's a mechanical way that they can do it, and that's kind of how you get more like a tea bag tea, like what you'd find in like a, a Lipton tea bag that speeds up the process a little bit more. But um, basically, yeah, black tea is fully oxidized, and green tea is not oxidized at all. And then there's oolong tea, and oolong pretty much means like um like black dragon i think it is in chinese and they call it that because um the it looks kind of like a curly dragon tail apparently if you look at the tea leaves and this is somewhere in between green and black tea because they let it oxidize just a little bit and that changes the flavor and there's actually a pretty wide range in oolongs and some of the ones that are going to be more oxidized they're going to have kind of more of a, a a woody flavor, and some of the ones that are lesser, um, you know, less oxidization, they're going to tend to have kind of more of like a fruity tone to it. Um, like they say, a lot of oolongs kind of have a um, like a stone fruit, like kind of like a peach apricot um, tone to it. And you know, this is actually kind of a lot like wine, where um, you know, and I'm not too well versed in wine really, but when they say this has notes of, you know, peach or whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean it tastes like a peach, you know, it's um kind of a little bit more swallow subtle. it, you think about it, there's an aftertaste, there's something in the back of the throat, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like um, you know, since I'm not really a, a wine drinker, if you say, Hey, this tastes like blackberries and like, you know, it doesn't taste like blackberries to me. You know, it's kind of one of those to, things. To quote Sheldon Cooper again, oh boy, it tastes <laughs> like burning grape juice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much like that. But um, but yeah, so oolongs kind of have a, a very wide range of flavors, and most of those come from uh, Taiwan and the uh, the coast of China, kind of um, across the straits from Taiwan. And then there's white tea, and white teas are kind of becoming more popular lately, and they're basically just the leaves that are plucked and um, set out to dry in the air, basically. And so it's almost like, uh, you know, raking up your leaves, basically, like uh, white tea almost kind of looks like that. They just uh, let them dry and kind of sort through and pick out the good ones. So white tea is going to be the uh, least processed I guess I know processed is kind of like a dirty word with food, but um, you know, like uh, white's going to be the least processed, and then black tea would be the most processed out of that. Oh, and there's also a pu'er tea, which is um, a type of tea that's fermented. And what this is, it's pretty similar to a green tea, 
but they let it sit in these cakes for uh, long periods of time. And they figured out ways to shorten the amount of time that they need to do it to make certain types of poo air. But um, basically, it's like a green tea that um, kind of has more like damp, earthy tones to it. And those have been pretty popular past few years. Um, I want to say it was Dr. Oz or somebody like that was kind of kind of big on them, or maybe Tim Ferriss or both of them. And um, that's kind of driven a lot of the market for Pu'er teas. But, um, but yeah, they are cool, like a traditional one. They're um, kind of packed into cakes. And this actually comes from the early tea trade. And um, now if you think about carrying tea over land, you know, it's loose leaf. Um, it'd be kind of a pain in the ass to, to carry all that because it takes up so much volume. So they would compress it into these cakes and take them across land. And um, one place they would commonly go would be like Tibet, um, Central Asia, these kind of high cold deserts. And the people there would make um, almost kind of like a soup out of it. Uh, with like mare's milk and, you know, maybe whatever spices they would have. And so it was almost like a vegetable, really, oh. um, you know, because there's vitamins and minerals and, you know, so forth in it, too. So um, maybe you can think of it as almost kind of like when the superfoods green smoothie shakes, I guess, of the of the, of the era. Um, there's also yellow tea, too, which is going to be more obscure you don't really see that too much but um the way yellow tea got started it was basically green tea gone wrong and um when you brew it up it does kind of have like a, a yellowish um liquor i guess you would say but um yeah those those are pretty rare gotcha gotcha so you you've been like you said building a business on all of this stuff mm -hmm. and uh you've been using farmers markets and craft shows why use those versus just doing the e-commerce thing i mean You got to get out there and like talk to people and deal with people and answer <laughs> questions and you know people suck so why, yeah. why yeah why 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 take that approach it all in seriousness why, why take that approach um, well when we originally started kicking around the idea of having this business um, we figured we would set up a website and and we did and it was pretty clunky and you know to be honest it's still kind of clunky but it's definitely better than it was and. We figured that doing farmers markets and stuff like that would be a way to, um, I, I don't know, maybe secondary to it. But it turned out we actually had a pretty big jump right off the bat. Um, there's a lot of farmers markets in Des Moines, but there's the downtown one. And this is one of the biggest ones in the country, really. Like they have, um, you know, tens of thousands of people every Saturday during the season. And we applied for that, and we were kind of expecting that, you know, maybe they would just give us like one or two dates here and there, maybe you know a couple. But we end up getting um, like a like half uh, half of the dates, basically, like every other weekend, which is pretty remarkable for a business that you know barely even existed at the time. And that was a big jump up for us, and I guess kind of changed our thinking that yeah, maybe we were going to focus more on farmers markets um, because. We found that, well, for one, they're accessible. You know, um, it was pretty easy for us to weasel our way into a lot of these things. And since doing them, I think um, it helped us out a lot insofar as we could see how people reacted to our product face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that would have been very difficult to do online. So say someone goes to our webpage and, um, you know, bounces off of it. We don't necessarily know why. We don't know if, um, you know, maybe the, they didn't like our prices, didn't like our product, um, it, you know, anything like they that. They didn't understand but, what you thought you were explaining. Exactly. That's the big yeah. one. Like when you tell somebody something out of market and they're like, huh, and you're like, well, wait a minute, maybe I said that wrong. <laughs> yeah, exa- yeah. you kind of get more real-time feedback. And, um, you know, we would start off maybe kind of saying different things to different people and kind of found out other things work. So um, you can kind of fine-tune what you do a little bit easier with that um, real-time bounce. And, you know, people would also ask you questions too, like, okay, I see you have this. Um, do you have this? And we got enough requests, you know, for example, for a tea with turmeric in it. Okay. And at the time, we didn't have anything with turmeric. And, uh, you know, we kind of looked into it and found the right turmeric to make tea, um, being it like little chunks instead of the powder. The powder is very easy to find. And once we made that tea with it's like turmeric, ginger, cinnamon, apples and lemon peel, it became our biggest seller. Really? So, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, and I can I, see what you mean there with you'd want pieces of like dried root. You put turmeric powder in something. No, that's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It wouldn't work. Yeah, it wouldn't work out too well. But, um, yeah, this tea, like pretty much as soon as we put it out, um, yeah, it was, it was a very big hit. And I don't think we would have known that otherwise no. if we just had like a website or, um, you know, retail or co-op. I don't, I don't know. Like, Sometimes people will go out of their way to contact us via the website and ask about certain things, but I think people are more likely to ask or state what they want when you're face to face. You know, so um, we've gotten some good feedback that way. Have you been able to convert those customers into ongoing customers? Because that's like one of the biggest things I hear for problems at craft shows and, 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 you know, swap meets and farmers markets that like, yeah, you, you, you go through all this work to sell the customer a $10 product and, mm-hmm. and they buy it and they go away and, you know, they never come back. Your, your, your obvious goal there, I think would be all the stuff you said. Plus though, if I can get that customer who, you know, most people don't go to the farmers market every week. Uh, and certainly people don't go to craft shows and stuff every week because they move around, right? But if yeah. I can get that customer to come in and buy my product and love it enough to then start ordering it off my website, then I got something. Have you been able to get that kind of conversion going on? Yeah, uh, yeah, actually, um, to a sense. Um, now, this the, the downtown farmer's market that I was talking about, um, there is quite a bit of repeat business. Okay. But um, one thing that I guess kind of holds us back a little bit is we sell all of our tea in two ounce um, bags, which um, herbs, you know, some are puffier, I guess you would say than others and last a little bit longer than others. And um, so typically like, you know, if you get a bag of tea like this and, you know, maybe if it's something for like an ailment of some sort, like we have like an allergy one, sleep teas and headaches and so forth. uh, People might only use that like when they start, when they feel that way. And so sometimes our products might kind of sit a little bit longer in people's shelves. So that's kind of been a problem in a sense. But also at the same time, too, um, you know, if people like our our sleep teas and so forth, um, they continue to use them. And so we have to make ourselves accessible. And, you know, kind of like what you're saying, the farmer's market's not every weekend. Uh, You know, the craft shows certainly aren't. Um, So... 
you know, we do have the website and we always um, put it on our packages. And um, one thing that we've done that's worked out pretty good last year is around Christmas time, um, we did a lot of different shows and we traveled quite a bit, um, you know, from here in Des Moines, like we went to Omaha, um, Quad Cities and, you know, some other little towns in Iowa and would pass out cards like business cards that say like, you know, thank you for your order and, you know, use this code for 15% off. And um, it's pretty much good from now until basically when the farmer's market starts up again in May. And honestly, that kind of kept the lights on for us over the winter mm. because it uh, generated enough sales that, um, you know, helped us pay for all of our recurring costs and keep us busy and focused. But, um, yeah, it's it's also good to have um, some social media and stuff, too, to, you know, kind of stay in people's minds a little bit, too. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's definitely something that um, that is an issue is kind of staying with people and, you know, keeping people coming back for more. And, um, you know, I always like hearing that when people like, oh, yeah, you know, I bought your tea at um, – you know, such and such farmer's market or this craft show or whatever, um, you know, somebody from work brought it in for me or whatever, and then they come back for more. So definitely a big goal. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, I think one of the things like you, things like you could see might fit your business model is what Nicole's doing now with her coffees with like a tea of the month club or something like, yeah, you get people on a recurring thing where it's more trouble to cancel than just, Hey, it shows up and it's here. You know, if you could do that, I think that would be a really good idea. Uh, one of the things I really like about what you're doing is you're doing a value-added business. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't get was an email that say for me that says, Jack, I have installed a chamomile farm. And when <laughs> I have enough chamomile, I'm going to start selling chamomile tea. And I, I hear from a lot of people, and I get it. I mean, we talk a lot about production here and all. Mm-hmm. But and I, it's not just, you know producing, let's say, livestock or vegetables. I've, I kind of dabble in the pet industry a little bit, and, you know, I like fish, and it's, you know, I'm going to breed these fish or these plants or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, you know, there's people that that's all they do. That's all right. they do. And they have these things called wholesalers. And if you're actually going to – if you're just going to sell the raw product through a wholesaler, okay, well, then that's you. But when you have this, you know, I'm going to create a co-op or I'm going to do this, I'm like, why – why don't you just do that before you spend five years and fifty thousand dollars to try to produce something that's readily available in a wholesale market and see if you can sell the product before you do that and then determine whether or not it makes sense for you to be a producer of the raw material or are you a better middleman because there's a place yeah. for the middleman um, oh yeah exactly yeah so so why do you say that it's it's worth considering the value added model over you know a primary production model um well, for one, um, you know, just kind of like what you're hinting, the people that actually are producing, that they need help moving their product. Um, that, you know, like uh, there's people growing peppermint and lavender and so forth right now, and they need people to um, turn it into something that people want. You know, so like there's a way you're kind of helping the uh, the producers that way. But from kind of a more personal business perspective, um, it's easier to get started oftentimes and kind of with less overhead. Um, you know, like let's say you want to make like jelly or jam. 
well, you know, hell, you just go buy the fruit and the sugar and packed in in jars and make it. You know, you don't, um, you know, if you want to have an orchard or something and, you know, grow trees, you know, for five, ten years or whatever and, you know, pick the fruit and, you know, process the fruit for like all this, uh, it, it takes some time and takes some effort and, it's also, um, you can get bogged down with too many things too. Um, you know, like just kind of doing the back of the napkin math. If I were to grow all these herbs, um, I just think about how much land I would actually need. I would be a, a full time and then some farmer. You know, I wouldn't have time really, or at least not a whole lot of time to blend things together, um, go to farmers markets, you know, do all the, um, administrative things i guess that we need to do too um so like i mean if you think about like say if you want to make mead well does it make sense just to go buy from buy honey from people that already know what they're doing and you know maybe have problems moving their products sometimes or do you start with the bees yeah yeah i think that makes a lot of sense i i, I really think that yeah, I'd like your opinion on this because you obviously you're a doer. You've done something. I think sometimes when people say I'm going to, and then there's this long, elaborate production model before yeah. there's anything for sale, it's some level of intellectual masturbation. Like it's another example of an excuse for putting off till tomorrow, which should be done today. Yeah, and I guess another way to look at it and. The, I don't know, like the uh, the primary producer pretty much always gets the shaft. Um, like, let's take like a slice of bread, for instance. Sure. So it starts off the guy that grows the wheat for that bread. Um, you know, he gets paid like, you know, some fraction of a fraction of a cent for that little bit of wheat. And the person who grinds it gets like, you know, a fraction of um, a cent for that wheat. The person who bakes that slice of bread, you know, might get like a penny or two. But think about like your local diner that how much would they charge you to throw it in a toaster and put some butter on it and, you know, some somebody will take 15% of that to serve it to you, basically. So, I mean, maybe that's kind of like an extreme model, but, um, but no, it's yeah. valid. And here's what the most valid part of it. In that model, the guy that makes the least profit also has the most risk. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Let's say your orders go down. You just don't order more stuff this month. You yeah. You run your existing inventory till it's low enough to justify, you know, if you are a farmer, and I'm not saying people shouldn't farm, you know me. I'm just saying Right. Yeah. Just take it in context and you get a drought, you get nothing, but I can just go to a different supplier and buy whatever I need to buy. Somebody somewhere had a successful year. Yeah. And like, let's say the the peppermint in Morocco. Morocco is actually, I think, the biggest producer of peppermint. Let's say something goes wrong there. You know, I don't know what would, but um, well, I can just buy it from Eastern Europe too. And you know, the guys in Morocco, they're you know kind of up the creek without a paddle. So yeah, it's kind of less risk. Um, you know, and if you know the peppermint dries up, I can always do something else too. You know, I can do raspberry leaf or you know regular tea or whatever i have more options i guess as a uh, as a value adder than the primary producer too yep absolutely um now let's talk a little bit about getting into farmers markets because i think this has a lot of regional variation too like because 
Texas seems to like want to destroy the existence of farmers markets before they happen. And because of that, the farmers markets that do get established are really stringent how many people they let in, mm-hmm. right, in certain areas and what is even qualified to be. And then other farmers markets are like, bring a table, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so how do you, how do you get into farmers markets, craft shows and things like that? Um, well, a lot of the good ones are, are juried and, um, I guess what that means is they want to know what your product is and they want to make sure that, you know, you're following the, the local laws. And, you know, those always kind of vary. Um, here in Iowa, there's kind of like cottage food laws that, you know, exempt somebody like what I'm doing from, um, you know, some of the more strict regulations or whatever. So it's, it's a little bit more freewheeling, but, Typically, they're going to want to see pictures and, you know, it always helps to um, have, you know, very nice professional pictures or something resembling it and to be able to describe what you do. And um, I don't know, I guess as much um, I, 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 just, I guess I don't know how to put it necessarily, but, um, you know, like let's say you grow tomatoes, you know, you don't want to just put I grow tomatoes, you'd you know, organic heirloom tomatoes or something like that that makes it stand out a little bit more because typically there's going to be competition for different things. Like um, us, for instance, we got lucky getting into the Des Moines Farmers Market and they said this because at the time there was nobody else doing tea. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, you know, there were people, you know, some half a dozen people say making like soap or candles or uh, baked goods these kind of things too. So being able to differentiate differentiate yourself, um, that definitely helps. Um, you know, and if you do make like soap or candles or something like that, well, you know, adding we make goat's milk soap or beeswax candles, that helps. Um, they also typically want to see almost every farmer's market, I guess, that we've done in most craft shows that you have uh, $1 million of liability insurance. Okay. And I, that kind of sounds like a lot, but honestly, we end up paying, I think it was like 50 bucks a month for it. So it's not too bad. But the funny thing about that is this liability insurance was probably our biggest hurdle to actually kind of starting a legit business. And we talked to, boy, I don't even remember how many. It was probably somewhere between a dozen and 20 different insurance agents um, trying to you know, find the small business liability insurance. And we got a lot of different quotes that just kind of were all over the place, really. Mm -hmm. Some people wanted, um, you know, several hundred dollars a month and quite a few just flat out said like, no, there's no way we would insure insure that. That the act of taking um, dry goods out of a bag and mixing (laughs) them with other dry goods and putting them in other bags, like, you know, there was something like, you know, kind of scary about that so um finally we did find somebody you know at a reasonable price that you know i i think we're probably pretty well insured but uh, a lot of farmers markets want to see that proof um okay. and you know that million dollars is has been pretty standard uh, it defers their liability right yeah because lawyers go where the money is yeah right? so often- let's say let's say i drink your tea and i get sick even if it's not because it's your tea i just that's what happens i get a lawyer the yeah. lawyer looks at you. You got insurance. 
Okay, we're suing you. I'm not going to sue the I'm not going to sue the the organizer of the uh, farmers market because I have a greater chance of winning against you. Yeah. Whether I have a chance or not, it's better against you because you you did the thing. If you don't have insurance though, and I look at you and you ain't worth no money, and mm-hmm. I'm a lawyer now, I'm suing them because they got money. Yeah. So that's all that it is is a deference of responsibility and liability, which you can understand why they would do that in a litigious society that we live in. Um, on that note, if you ever consider, you know, we talked about value add before. So, like, there, because I've looked into this, there are companies that do basically. You say, I want this. They make it exactly the way you want it with whatever you say to source, and they do the packaging. They do everything. So then it's in an FDA facility or some crap like that. Have you ever thought about that? And if yeah, so, we, what was good, what was bad? Because I don't really know. I just like, one day got bored and Googled white label tea, you know, and that's as much as I know. Yeah, I know there's um, a facility here that um, would do that. And um, I, I don't know. To me, what I do, there's a lot of kind of a lot of labor to it, I guess, like bagging the tea. Yeah. That um, I'm not sure if we'd end up kind of getting killed on the margins. Okay. <laughs> doing something like that, I would like to price that and kind of see what happens. But um, also for the scale that we're doing it right now, um, you know, it, to me it means something to say that I, you know I'm doing this all by hand. You know that um, you know there's a few blends that we don't make some, uh, but most of the blends are ones that we do actually make, and um, you know they're all packaged at least by me by hand. So like. You know, like that to me, that's something to say that, like, you know, yes, this passed through my hands and um, sending that off the facility, that would definitely change that. But at this point, if we wanted to expand from what we're doing, um, like do more, I guess, conventional retail, like, yeah, we'd probably have to go that route. And actually, just, I don't know, maybe like a month, month and a half ago, I got a call from the health inspector and, um, you know, we, talked about this a little bit um kind of at the level that we're at now like i was saying we kind of fly under the radar Mm -hmm. a little bit um i do use a certified kitchen i don't necessarily have to legally but it turned out to be a pretty good idea to do that and um but basically what they told me is that if i i did want to be in stores or served in restaurants that um yeah i would kind of have to do something like that or at least um at least have them certify, I guess, my little part of that kitchen and so forth. Um, to be honest, we do do a little bit of, um, I guess, informal retail. Like, you know, there's a few little um, boutiques that have our tea. And um, there was a coffee shop that actually, unfortunately, just closed down a couple weeks ago. And they were serving our tea, too. And there's a, there's a restaurant around here that does, too. And, you know, it's probably one of these things where, you know, legally it's, I don't know, probably, probably not right, but, um, you know, just kind of like what the health inspector told me. He's not really too worried about what we're doing, but, um, but yeah, to go bigger from what we're doing, like, yeah, that'd probably be the route I'd have to go. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like when you make that crossover and like until you do, I think then you really have to sell the hand mixed, hand blended type thing. Like, so that, like, this, this is what you're getting that you don't get when you buy from, you know, Megamart or even Quickie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So 
Are you using like social media, email lists, and online orders to get to customers outside of these markets we've been talking about up till now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we've got a Facebook page, and um, we usually do pretty well with that. Um, I know a lot of people talk about their reach um, kind of being diminished, I guess, in the past few years. But um, I don't know. We usually have pretty good luck with that. Um, I mean, if we just post something kind of you know, silly, like, Hey, we'll be here today. You know, like usually that doesn't get a lot of traction, but usually things with like pictures or, you know, something a little bit interesting, um, you know, it, it tends to get out quite a bit. And, um, we use Instagram too. And I actually like Instagram. It's fun, but, um, I think there's different values to Instagram for what we do compared to Facebook. Um, Facebook is probably where most of our customers are at. Okay. Um, now, my uh, 12-year-old stepdaughter just last week or whatever um, overheard my wife and I talking about you know, posting something business-related on Facebook. And she was kind of like, Facebook is where all the old people are at. And it's like, <laughs> we, yeah, exactly. You know, and they like, drink tea. Yeah, yeah. Right, it's like, yeah. you know, our, our demographic is going to be a little bit older. And, um, you know, like if we had a um, Red Dragon Herb Snapchat or something like that, it probably wouldn't reach out to the right people. But, um, yeah, Facebook is definitely where our customers are at. And Instagram, to me, it has value that we're kind of able to reach out to a lot of other businesses in the area um, through hashtags. So it almost seems like our Instagram is more um, professional like compared to um i guess having like cus- reaching customers um so we've caught the attention of you know some key bloggers and um you know different people doing things similar to what we're doing in you know local restaurants and um other like farmers market vendors and stuff like that so it's kind of nice to be able to um you know, stay abreast of what's going on with other people with Instagram too, and in a way that you couldn't do as easily with Facebook. And I also think Instagram is kind of cool because you can um, kind of poke people a little bit easier, it seems like. Um, so I'll look up the hashtag for the farmer's market that we're at um, sometimes and kind of see people, the pictures they post from there. And usually there's quite a bit. And you know, you just go through and, you know, like their picture. And that's somebody that goes to the market and they look at their phone. They see that Red Dragon Herbs and Teas likes their picture. So, it, you know, kind of gets you in their head a little bit. And if you do want to approach other businesses locally, sometimes that's a good way to um, kind of soften the entry, I guess, a little bit maybe. Like, um, you know, like just take us, for instance, if we wanted to reach out to like a chiropractor or something about having your tea there. Well, mm-hmm. we can keep liking their posts on Instagram a little bit and get in their head. So there's a little bit of uh, familiarity before approaching them. You know, like it, it might be a little superficial, but it's it's better than just kind of walking in the door. You know, sometimes you can establish some connections, I guess, through Instagram. But, um, but yeah, I think every little niche business is going to be a little bit different. And um I don't know. It just kind of takes some trial and error maybe to figure out uh, what platforms work and what doesn't. And um, we do have an email list. That's something that I don't know. There's times where, you know, I admit I've kind of dropped the ball on it, you know, maybe not have our clipboard out or whatever. But usually that's pretty effective. 
um, you know, if we post something kind of like a big update or like a new tea or something like that, usually, um, you know, people that sign up for that right there, they, um, they are interested in hearing from you. So, you know, they'll usually click on it and at least read it. And, um, but yeah, definitely if you're doing these craft shows, um, a lot of times you end up traveling around to other cities and, you know, going out of your area. So it's kind of nice to, to collect people, I guess, in a way, um, be it through these email lists and, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram and so forth. And, um, I guess one little tip that I figured out as far as email lists, like if you have the traditional clipboard with the paper out there is if it's empty, no one signs it. Hmm. But as soon as somebody signs it, well, then other people start doing it, too. So, um, you know, Mike Rogers, Tom Jones, uh, <laughs> a couple people yeah. that just see it. That's like a, a bartender's tip, right? You know, yeah, when, exactly, when yeah. they so put the jar out on the bar, they throw a couple bucks in there. Yeah, I mean, right. maybe if you put, like, bend over or something on there, people might see through it. But um, <laughs> usually, like, I, I never... J.P. Um, Hawkins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, IP Freely. Or, yeah. yeah. But, like, I never bring, like, a new sheet of paper to start that. And um, one mistake... Oh, just I, bring the end of the last list. Then it's authentic. Exactly. Yeah. Right, so yeah. Start off right off the bat with, like, it's half full. And, um, you know, if I do start a new one, like, I'll kind of put, like, um, you know, sign sign up for the email list on there and not just put, just, like, name email, basically, um, you know, and let people figure it out. But kind of uh, a suggestion to sign up for it. So, um, I don't know, like, yeah, it's, it's good to, um, you know, also kind of suggest it to people like, um, you know, if they say like, oh yeah, we need to be back to say, oh yes, you know, sign our Facebook or like us on Facebook. Um, I don't know if there's any apps or anything, like if you have like a, a tablet where, or no, I, I do know there's a guy that, um, does soap or something around here and he has a tablet sitting out. Okay. And, you know, people can just type their, um, email address in there and it goes right to their mailing list. Um, basically making it as easy as possible. Um, that's probably a good idea. Um, I don't know if there's one necessarily for like Facebook likes or Instagram or whatever, but, um, his email app is, is pretty slick and that's something we should probably look into. I don't know if you've noticed this. What I've seen is, Yeah, most of my people are on Facebook, but that's probably because of me. Like, I worked <laughs> Facebook for 10 years. I also built 100,000 followers on my page that see almost nothing of what I post because Facebook changed that a few years ago, and they just basically want to sell you access to your own people now. Um, but even, like, our forum group, I have, I don't know, there's 10,000, 12,000 people in the group that we started a, about a year ago, um, and we get a lot more interaction there. But the most interaction I get for the modest amount of subscribers I have, is Instagram. Like, we yeah. throw a video on Instagram, we have 3,000-some hundred followers, and we get a 1,000 views almost immediately, where I can throw something on YouTube with, like, 40,000 subscribers and get the <laughs> same number of views. And so Instagram, to me, has, like, I feel dumb because <laughs> I never really considered Instagram valid for what I do. Like, I'm not a, a heavy still photograph guy with what I do, and my videos are always more than a minute. So I kind of got talked into it by my nephew because his, his whole business is built on Instagram. And so we built it up to, like, 3,000 people in a few months. And, like, I'm like, holy crap, if I'd been doing this for 10 years and I had, oh, 100, and I had 100,000 Instagram followers, 
I can do a hundred times more with a with a hundred thousand Instagram followers probably than I could do with a million Facebook followers. Yeah, like yeah, I don't know if there's any um, real algorithms or whatever that. Of course, I'm waiting for Facebook to screw that up since they bought Instagram, (laughs) right? You know, but yeah, knock on wood, yeah. (laughs) But so I think it is. You got to be careful about the digital sharecropping. And you're talking about the lists at the the markets. Like, did did I miss it? Or when you do that, do you do things like you know enter your email and win a free pack of tea or something like that? When you do that, Um, we've done that before, and um, I I think it, it probably helped get a few people to sign up. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose it could at some, some of these bigger like shows or yeah. something, like maybe doing a, you know, a raffle for something like this. Um, you know, then I guess if they win, you know, maybe posting a picture of them with it or something, you know, just yeah. kind of show that somebody actually did win thing. To be honest, I, I remember there was one uh, vendor event that we did that turned out to be like not very good at all. Okay. And we tried something like this and then like, you know, once it was all done, it's kind of like, yeah, we're just not even going to bother. You know, thanks for the 10 email addresses or whatever we got. So, but, um, but yeah, like, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good way to kind of encourage people a little bit to, to do something. And, I always you know, wonder if that works really well because I like when I go to those things where people are like, you can win a free show. I, that's whatever comes after that, I don't hear. Like, yeah. I'm either interested in what you have or I'm not. And if I'm not stopping, I'm not stopping. Like, you know, if you were given free beer, oh, well, you know. Yeah. Do y'all do, do, y'all do samples? We do, Yeah, we do. Okay. And uh, that's something that um, we've done from the beginning, but there's been a handful of times where, um, you know, just due to certain restrictions, we were not able to sample. Sure. And um, there is a big difference in, uh, in sales. Um what we do is we've got typically about 25 different teas out and usually we'll pick two, sometimes three if it's a little bit bigger of an event and um, have samples. And we try to have things that are a little bit different from each other too. And um, everything else, we just have like baby food jars yeah, with a little bit of the tea in there so people can open up and smell, smell it. Yeah. Yeah. So like that's something that um, that's been pretty good because, you know, we can't sample everything with what we have. Um, I know there's people that do like um, spice mixes and dips and stuff like that, and um, typically those guys will have something out where you can um, sample everything. But yeah, um, pretzel sticks and all. And I, I'll, I'll admit, I I hit when I got a craft show, I hit those guys up hard. I usually buy something if it's good. Yeah, but I go down and it's a pretzel stick in every single thing they have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what it's there for. Yeah. But yeah, we have um, little. I think they're like two ounce cups of um, of tea. You know that we'll just give people like a little splash, and um, you know, then people either like it or they don't, I guess. But um, but yeah, sampling definitely helps. Um, you know, if you can do something like that. Are there some like red flags that you should look out with? You know, certain craft shows and farmers oh. markets, like don't do this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was talking about earlier ones that are juried. And, uh, you know, usually they want, you know, certain types of things and, you know, kind of put forth certain images, I guess, too. But there are some that really aren't. And usually a big red flag is uh, the amount of multi-level marketers there. Mm. So, you know, if Mm. you like a, um, 
I don't know, a lot of times like a, a church basement craft show or something like that, it'll be like, oh yeah, there'll be, you know, the Lou LaRoe and, um, Damsel and, you know, all these different ones like that. And, um, usually those tend to be, um, not so great. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's, there's usually, I don't know, there's some that we do that, will be kind of like a mix of things and you know some you know those are you know either decent or not you know just kind of on their own merits but um kind of in our earlier days we've done ones before people be like oh yeah hey you know we got this craft show we're trying to set up and uh do you want to come and you know you'll be there with um you know like the herbal life or whoever people or whatever and um yeah it's usually not very good Mm. and you know you get kind of a little indignant when people kind of ask if you're one of those two it's like no i do this myself you know but um but yeah usually that's kind of a red flag but you know at the same time too i'll say that it's also good if you have nothing really to lose but you know the the 25 bucks or whatever it costs to be in there in a saturday afternoon that you know sometimes it might be worth it you know you might you never know you might make a uh reoccurring customer or um you know maybe it will be good or um you know, maybe you might kind of learn something, kind of take your take your licks, I guess, sometimes um, getting into this kind of businesses by doing those kind of things. It, it builds character a little bit, I guess you would say. Well, I think one of the things that people should really kind of commit to themselves with is like put your business first and your time first. So if you if you take a gamble on a show mm-hmm. and you go there and it clearly blows, don't feel bad for picking up your crap and leaving and going home. You know, and working on your marketing. Like, because there are shows I've been to where it's like, okay, you stand here all day and you might sell one bag of tea. Yeah. And so you need to go home. You, or go do, go have lunch, right? You know, leave the sign up pad there in a, a pack of samples and walk. Because uh, I've <laughs> seen people like feel this obligation to the show organizer to stay there. And if they're doing a good job for you, I, I understand that. But I have seen, you know, when I was in corporate America and I would do mm-hmm. big electronics trade shows for companies like Fluke, you like, you're like, okay, I don't know why we're here. And I would yeah. have to stay, you know, because you were required to. And I'm like, you know, if I was doing what's best interest of this company right now, I would be negotiating a $400,000 deal with the FBI, not listening to some guy standing around my booth telling the five people that are here that they can get better deals on my equipment if they buy it used on eBay. Like, this yeah. really is not where I belong. So I think if you find yourself in that as an independent business person, walk, because your time has value. Yeah, um, I guess what I would say to that is if it's a bridge you're willing to burn. Sure, because you're absolutely. gone. You're not going yeah. back, right? But, like, say, for instance, like, um, you know, the, the downtown Des Moines Farmer's Market, uh, there's been days where, you know, the weather has been just terrible. Like, you know, it's pouring down rain and, you know, yeah. no one shows up or whatever. Um, if I did that from there, like, um, it, yeah, I pretty much would not be welcome back. Um, Valid. So, Valid. Yeah, I'm talking so like, more of the shows than the farmers markets. You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. If you're doing like some church basement and you know no one's showing up or whatever, it's like you know it's kind of a, a bridge you're willing to burn or whatever. Like yeah, by all means. But yeah, you know there's been times we've done that and um, 
I don't know, I remember one that we did in like a high school or something like that. And, um, I think I paid like 50 bucks to get in there and sold like 40 bucks worth of tea over yes. like hours. And, um, I think I watched almost an entire movie on my phone without being bothered <laughs> by anybody. So, but you know, sometimes these things, these things too, um, if you do wind up in those kind of situations, you know, sometimes even like good shows like that, there's going to be periods of time where, um, you know, it's slow, like, you know, the last hour, first hour, whatever. Yeah. Um, it's kind of nice just to get around and, like, talk to some of the other people. Um, you'd be surprised. Actually, quite a bit of sales at these kind of events come from, like, within the other vendors. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, kind of um, rubbing elbows. And, you know, sometimes, um, you know, you might learn something. Sometimes, you know, you'll talk about, like, different, like, shows and stuff that are available. So we've learned a lot, actually, from just kind of um, – schmoozing i guess with other people during downtime but um you know usually me like when i'm doing it i'm kind of more all business you know like i'll sit there and you know kind of man the booth but my wife she's more social so when she shows up she's more likely to go around and chat with people and spend our money that we're trying to earn i guess with other people and but you know fortunately you know we have other people coming to do that for us too so absolutely uh, you also find strategic relationships sometimes in those situations. Yes. What are, yes. what are some unexpected difficulties or positive surprises you found when you were getting started? Um, well, I was surprised. Well, the difficulty was the insurance. That was kind of something I was kind of panicked about when we um, were accepted into the farmer's market, the Des Moines one, and had to show that we had insurance. And, you know, I was kind of trying to scramble to find somebody to actually insure us. But I think the biggest surprise was um, who is buying our tea. Like I kind of figured that our average customer would be, um, I don't know, maybe a bit younger. And um, I don't know, kind of more like in the vein of like the, um, you know, typical like foodie or something like that might mm -hmm. be kind of more interested in what we're doing. But it turns out that uh, or turns out that um, probably a little bit popular among middle-aged women. And um, – so, yeah, it kind of, uh, you know, I figured we'd have some, you know, some sales from that demographic, but, um, who our actual customer, our typical customer looks a lot different from, uh, who I thought it would be. And, um, yeah, that's, that's been a pretty good thing. I mean, honestly, middle-aged women, you know, they have money to spend, you know, so, so that, that's a good thing. And, um, I don't know, it's maybe, it was maybe a bit of a challenge for me to, um, relate. I guess sometimes to, you know, people basically my mother's age or whatever. But, uh, you know, I think I've kind of learned to do pretty well with them. And I, I enjoy our, uh, our demographics quite a bit, actually. Well, and they are the people with money. Exactly. Like, yeah. You, you, there's, there's, there's two things you can't sell to. One is stupidity because <laughs> you can cure ignorance and you can sell to ignorance, but you cannot sell yeah. the stupid and you cannot sell to poverty. Yeah. Right. So, it, so yeah. if you find yourself selling to either one of those, change. You know, look for the look for the the either the smart or the curably ignorant, and also mm -hmm. look for those who have money because if they don't have money, and there's always an ethics thing. They're like with tea. I mean, it's a seven dollar product or whatever. But like, if you really are a good salesperson, you're uncovering problems for people, and then you show them, let's say. The, their their air handling system in their house is killing them, and then you're like, well, I need 20 grand to fix it. They don't have money. You've just made their life worse. You have yeah. to really help them, right? yeah. you know. So, but yeah, I, I get that. What would you say your best advice is 
for selling niche products at farmer's markets. Somebody said, what's the one thing you should kind of take away from this interview if you're going to try to do that? Well, it kind of plays a little bit on um, the last question, but when you go into it, it's not – like in my case, I'm not necessarily selling to people who like tea. Um, that that's a pretty small market. Um, you have to convince people to to give it a shot. You know, what I'm saying like you know, let's say you're doing pastured pork. Well, you know, what percent of that population knows what pastured pork really is and kind of understands it and the benefits? So it's not really a passive thing. You have to sell what it is that makes what you do special. Hmm. So um, you know, most people don't really drink tea. Um, but you know, when they come by, um, you know, maybe I can convince them that, Hey, this might help you feel a little bit better or, Hey, this will taste good or, um, whatever. And, you know, sometimes you have to like walk them through how to do it. And, um, so yeah, I think that's it. Just, uh, basically convincing people to give it a shot instead of focusing on, um, people that you think are already the market, Yeah, I think maybe one of the things is like you mentioned the foodies and all. I don't know that it's something that people have really started to think about doing better with yet, mm -hmm. because people drink tea. I, yeah, every, like, I'm gonna say everybody. That's that's. I in fact, I hate when advertisements and and media and anybody's like, well, everybody's talking about. I'm not. I'm everybody. <laughs> yeah. Shut up. But no, but <laughs> it is a it is one of the biggest markets in the country. But I don't know that people have stepped to the point now where they really care that they go beyond you know celestial seasonings or lipton yeah and i and think there's an incredible opportunity in that and educating people that and i think that foodie market well let's break that foodie market in half there's the there's the me foodies people like me we do mm -hmm. have money and we will spend money on stuff and then there's like the millennial foodie market and i don't think there's anything wrong with that market except it hasn't matured enough from a financial capability standpoint yet, right? That's yeah. why they're watching Brothers Green Eats on YouTube tell them how to elevate ramen. Because yeah. it's not that they don't want your product. Okay, if I buy his $7 little bag of tea, I can't really afford to go out tonight and chase girls. Yep, and that's why I'm kind of lucky their mothers are buying it. <laughs> <laughs> buy your, buy yeah. your foodie hipster tea. <laughs> your, your, your foodie hipster son, T. That's your next marketing campaign. I, I think it's totally valid, though, like figuring out what is the trigger for that person. Because I think when you do a show, a farmer's market, anything like that, what you're buying is foot traffic. The fact that you yes. get to interface with people. So every person that comes up to me is an opportunity to educate them to my product and to why they might be interested in it. And if I take a higher view of, well, I don't want to really educate you to why you should buy Red Dragon tea. I want to educate you as to well, why you should consider tea in your life. Now, I become the source of that. Well, if you're going to try it, you might as well try mine. So having that larger goal, I think, fits well in any niche, being that educational source. And I think one of the things you have that's really strong is your story. I think mm -hmm. you have to condense it because at a farmer's market, I got to hit you, and either you're there or I'm moving your ass so I talk to the next person. But the fact that you've traveled the world, you've drank tea out of, of a tin can made over a pile of camel crap, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, that, that, like, how many people in a farmer's market can tell you, I mean, honestly tell you that anyway, you know? Someone can listen to this and go, I'm going to rip that the hell off, but they didn't do it, <laughs> right? You know, or when I was a soldier in Iraq, we would occasionally just 
drop into randomly inspect places so we could sample their teas. Uh, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> like, th to me, that is, that is, that is the story behind the marketing that this is why I do this. And after traveling the whole world and now realizing because of the internet, I have access to literally anything. If I want to put it in tea, I can have it on my front doorstep in, in a day or two. Yeah, and, and, and you know, with that ability, kind of one, this is what I make, and this is why. And you know, that's one thing that um, it's really satisfying for me. I, you know, I know this kind of sounds like, you know, kind of advertisement kind of thing, but um, you know, like we get people, you know, like recently there was a woman from Russia, and we've got a Russian caravan tea, which is um, kind of like a very like bold, smoky um, black tea. And she opens up the jar and she smells it, kind of takes a deep breath, and was like, "Oh, this." This smells like the motherland. And, you know, it's kind of cool, too. Um, you know, like people from Argentina have stopped by or Turkey. And, you know, they see we have Turkish apple or yerba mate blends. And, you know, like they like it kind of reminds them of home a little bit. And they're kind of like, oh, wow, you know, this this is cool to see something like this. You know, that's like kind of like a little like piece from home or um You know, people that, you know, maybe have gone on a trip to like Morocco or something like that. They say like Moroccan mint tea or, you know, Indian mm. chai or whatever. So, like, I think that is one thing that I get some satisfaction out of, like being able to um, kind of share that little bit of the world, I guess, with people through something like that. You know, that's an actually an interesting thing, the ethnic niches to, to mm -hmm. explore for anybody, whether it's tea or any product. Like, when we would end up with a surplus of duck eggs, I just send Dorothy off to get her nails done. Because the whole nail parlor was full of full of uh, uh, Asian. I don't know if they were Vietnamese or, or I think they were Vietnamese at the shop she goes to. And she'd Probably. go in there and have the back of the forerunner loaded with duck eggs, get her nails done and say when she's leaving, hey, you know, I have a whole bunch of duck eggs in the in the truck. They're eight dollars a dozen. And of course the immediate Asian bartering mind would come yeah. out and she'd go, No, no, you don't understand. They're eight dollars a dozen. Yeah, oh no, they're not big. Okay, then don't buy them. And and, and inevitably They would get on their phones calling, like, aunties and shit, and, like, the whole – she'd come back without any eggs. And we'd yeah. sell every surplus egg we have. And I'm like, you know, if we could get into one Vietnamese Catholic church, we'd, we'd never have – like, we would never, ever have an egg ever yeah. again. And we don't do that business anymore because Dorothy is a full-time grandma now, basically. But, like, that ethnic niche, if you find the right fit, It, it's on, and I could see, like, with tea, the issue is, well, just like you can get any ingredients you want, mm -hmm. so can they. But if you can create kind of the hook that I'm local and I do this to serve you, yeah, then, well, why, why not use that? Because, like, one of the things like, we should mention is you have my tea that I formulated on your website, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And the thing about that is, yeah, I give away the recipe. And I make it myself because we drink a effing lot of it. But the average person probably doesn't want to buy a pound of chamomile. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. mean, you know what a pound of chamomile – I think a lot of people have no idea. It like, would be about like maybe two, two and a half Ziploc, gallon Ziploc. Gallon size. Ziploc. It's a yeah. big amount of chamomile. And to make it economical, kind of that's the way you go. Mm -hmm. um, they, they're going to get the same shock I did the first time. I'm like, yeah, you know, since I buy all my herbs in bulk – I'm going to buy a pound of bay leaf. <laughs> yeah. I bought a pound of bay leaf. I'm like, what the hell have I done? This, you know, because Amazon sends a big box. So you're like, oh, it's a big box. You open the box, it's actually like this giant. I'm like, oh, my God. 
So yeah, I, we hit, I text we my buddy David. I'm like, hey, man, don't ever buy bay leaf again. We're good. He's like, I have a bay tree. I'm like, damn it. What yeah. do I do now? <laughs> yeah, we have one tea that uh, takes calendula. And okay. uh, a pound of calendula looks like a pillow, basically. <laughs> you know? But uh, to kind of backtrack a little bit to that ethnic niche, um, this year, right next to us at the farmer's market was a uh, – I believe they were Vietnamese, some uh, Southeast Asian of some sort couple. And um, they grew a lot of unique produce. And honestly, I didn't know what a lot of this stuff was. Um, you know, like there was like squash blossoms and um, just kind of like weird greens and vines. Um, and I mean, honestly, like, you know, a lot of white people that would come up to them would kind of be like, you know, what's this? And, you know, they'd have to explain – but the farmer's market had a pretty strict policy that nothing at all was to be sold before a bell rang at 7 a.m. Oh. Well, these people, they would have people lined up and um, from just a ton of different ethnicities like other um, Southeast Asians, people from um, you know parts of Africa, I guess. And they would be there for half hour. And, you know, the woman, she had to be pretty strict with these people like, you know, hey, put that down and – you know, you can't touch that, you know, nothing until then. But right when that bell would ring, there'd be a huge flurry. And, you know, at these people's stand, you know, not mine, we'd be pretty slow for the first hour. But um, it'd just be – I have some videos, I think, on my Instagram of it. But um, people would buy, like, kind of in large quantities, too. It may have been, like, certain, like, ethnic restaurants or whatever. But, um, but yeah, whatever it was they were doing um, – was a pretty hot commodity because um, most of their business would be done like in that first half hour. And, um, you know, like they would sell all these things that, you know, we have no idea what they were, but these other people were pretty excited about it. So, so yeah, they definitely um, had their little niche that say a guy, you know, down the street that had, you know, just kind of tomatoes and cucumbers and green beans. Well, you know, no one be flocked around him right at seven. No, no, because you can always get that. And the other thing is, like, he doesn't run out. Like, I would say if you ever snap to that kind of a niche, you mm -hmm. got to do it like every really good small barbecue place does in Texas. They make a certain amount, and they're only open certain days. And yep. when it's sold out, they shut the door. Yeah. <laughs> and because of that, they never don't sell out. Yeah, because people are like I can't just go there yeah. anytime and get it right. Like I, if I don't get it Wednesday, I'm waiting till Saturday, and I got something to do Saturday, and I can't stand in line. And like all those little niche places like that, that's what they do. So if you had like a farmers market where you had this big draw, I would bring just a little less than you think you could sell and sell that crap out fast and be like, sorry, because that yeah. way you know next week you're going to do it again. Yeah, and sometimes we kind of do that, and you know, maybe it's kind of a little showmanship a little bit, but um, one tea that we have is um, like an allergy relief tea that's good for seasonal allergies, and um, yeah, there's been times where, you know, pretty much like that first hour of the market, you know, just kind of flies off the shelves and we're out of it pretty soon, but um, sometimes we'll kind of make a point to say like, you know, hey, you know, like, we don't really have a whole lot of it this week or, you know, this, that. So kind of, you know, get it while you can, you know, to see if that kind of stokes a little bit. So, um, so yeah, you got to kind of play on that a little bit, you know, it, in a way, I guess it's almost kind of like when, um, you know, like a restaurant chain, you're like, oh yeah, it'd be cool if they had this here. But, you know, as soon as it comes, you know, like you're kind of like, oh wow, cool. Yeah. Who cares? So there's, yeah, you got to create a little bit of scarcity. Sometimes that helps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you're in that situation that so many people find themselves in. 
I have a successful business, but it's not successful enough yet to transition to full time. It's mm -hmm. a side hustle. How do you manage your time without kind of overrunning things with I have a business, I have a job, I have a family? Um, boy, it's it's hard. Um, one thing that is kind of a killer and in a way it's a benefit too is it's so flexible. So you know, you figure like, okay, we'll I'll have a couple hours here, a couple hours there, maybe to do things like that. But in a way, it's kind of a killer because you waste so much time in, in transitions. And, um, you know, jumping from, say, you know, I've got to go to work after this. So, you know, transition to work or whatever. So sometimes it's a good idea to try to set yourself up for a larger block of time. You know, like say if you want to work on your business for, you know, an hour, half an hour or so every night, um, you know, maybe you might be better off kind of getting things ready throughout the week so you can sit down for three hours mm. instead. And I guess the other thing that's important is uh, no matter what it is you do, it's coming at the expense of whatever it is you do to, you know, kind of unwind. And, you know, theoretically, you're taking on more and relaxing less. So whatever it is you do, um, you know, you have to uh, really like it, kind of really be passionate about it, or else it's just going to drag you down. But, um, you know, we we do what we can to kind of try to stay ahead of the curve. Um, you know, some weeks are better than others, but, um, yeah, and, you know, also sometimes, too, you just have to jump in and make commitments for yourself and um, – Sometimes the way you plan is not how it's actually going to work out and um you know you'll you'll figure out what actually works. When I talked about what I thought our business would be like when we first started, the way it's actually ran is totally different mm. than what we started and um you know some of it's just uh you know finding out what what it actually works and uh what doesn't by trial and error. Yeah, you know, I I agree completely. I think it also has a lot to do with like is it Is it advancing your life? And there's a couple ways that could be. There are people yeah. that they look at their business and they go, this will never be anything but a side hustle. But I know like one guy, they're making about 1500 bucks on their business a month. And, you know, they could, they could scale it to make maybe double that and make three grand in profit, but they can't live on that. Right. Right. So they're like, okay, this, this, there's no point in making it bigger. It is what it is. But they take about $500 a month and they put it into the family fund and they put about $1,000 a month into their retirement. So yeah. they're guaranteeing themselves a multimillionaire retirement with their side business. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And over – because they're also still investing their standard, you know, investing 10% of their earnings and all that. So, like, they are going to retire multimillionaires. So, you know, we can do this for, you know, 10, 15 years toward our retirement and then maybe step back from or maybe transition to a part-time business in retirement. But so they see a reason – Uh, they're making a profit. They're doing something with it. There's other people I think that would get into my state. Like, you know, I was into this about a year with this business here. And I told Dorothy, because I was working my brains out, just give me six more months. Yeah. And I knew I had that walk away moment. And I think as long as you have something like that in it, you're willing to make more sacrifices. And if you don't, then you got to figure out how do I make it worth it or how do I... How do I let it be what it is, which is a hobby that turns a small profit instead of an all-consuming thing? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one way I kind of look at it, too, um, I guess kind of from the, the modern survival perspective, uh, you know, let's say I lost my job tomorrow. Mm. Well, like, 
yeah, we don't really make enough with the tea to um, replace that income. But what if I had to start from from nothing? You know, what I'm saying like there's something in place right now where you know, yeah, you know, I could spend more time on it. You know, make more than what we're making now. So you know that um, that's established. I'd be starting from somewhere. You know, as yeah. opposed to um, absolutely nothing, because you know, like in the beginning, you know, probably just like every other business, yeah, we we made mistakes that wasted money. Sure, you know, there's a, there's a learning curve to all this, and that learning curve was definitely made more comfortable by the fact that uh, you know I knew that other income was there that was going to pay the mortgage and all that. So, um, you know, maybe that's made things a little tempered, you know, and kind of maybe held held you back a little bit, but. Um, you know, it also makes some of those losses a little bit more bearable. Absolutely. You know, it's the thing that would have put you out of business set you back and taught you a lesson instead. So Right, yeah. I completely agree with that. I also think, like, there are a lot of people that I see that they're in, like, a, a side hustle business, make maybe a grand, a couple grand a month. Mm -hmm. And if they're smart, they're doing it as a company. So they're in LLC or, you know, right, yeah. S Corp or whatever. And so if both spouses own that business, then money goes into the business, not into the spouse's pocket or to your pocket. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if either party loses their job, then we just start doing distributions to one party versus the other. And that unemployment that I've paid into for five, ten years, whatever it is, now I get that because I'm not working. Oh, yeah. But now <laughs> I can work full time, draw unemployment, And build that business up, hopefully, before the unemployment wears off. And maybe yeah. I can't live on you know, unemployment, and I, maybe I can't live on the uh, the business alone. But if you put the two together, and I've been a good aunt, and I have an emergency fund for 90 days, all of a sudden, looking like I can go a year is pretty good. Yeah. So absolutely. structure yeah. is really, really important, <laughs> you know, and, and that is pretty airtight with, you know, the law. Like, yeah. I don't have income. This company has income, and my wife is getting all the distributions and salary out of it. I'm just here as an owner, right? Yeah. And, I mean, that's it's done. I, there's not a lot they can do with that. Now, I wouldn't go rubbing it in anybody's face. I'm just saying think <laughs> about that if you're in the position that someday I can lose my job because it could be the best thing that ever happened to you if your business is just at that tipping point. Yeah, you know, exactly. Because yeah. now it's basically, and I, I know people like, you know, you're supposed to be an anarchist and taxes are theft. Okay, listen, unemployment is something you pay for while you work that your employer just moves the money around. It's cost of doing business with you, and you're getting your money back, which yeah, I am exactly always for that. recovering stolen money if you can. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just. If, if you don't, someone else will. Somebody you know? <laughs> else will. Absolutely, man. So tell folks, like, how can they find your teas, learn more about what you're doing, stuff like that? Um, yeah, you can, uh, find our teas at reddragonherbs.net. Um, you know, we had to take that to start off with, but we do own .com now as well, too. So that re redirects to net. Okay. Um, and then, uh, you can find us on Facebook, just, uh, Red Dragon Herbs and Teas. And then also Instagram too as uh, Red Dragon Herbs and Teas. And um, you know if you want to email, um, there's info at reddragonherbs.net, and that'll get you to me. And if you guys want to try my my Jack's Morning blend that I I'm going to tell you guys, I put a lot of 
I drank a lot of tea before I was like, this is, this is my thing. And you've never wanted to go out and buy a pound of chamomile and a pound of peppermint and whatever. <laughs> yeah. uh, you can find that on their, their herbal blends list. It's called Jack's Blend, a.k.a. TSP. And I, I like it. I like the marketing. T-E-A All for right. T-S-P. Uh, and you can get a pack for seven bucks and give it a shot. So uh, it is Jack approved because it's Jack formulated. You guys should check it out. And I've, I've had some of your other stuff. You guys do a good job. So, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Get on by reddragonherbs.net. Take a look at their teas. Pick some stuff up. Um, getting close on Christmas. But, you know, maybe if you order it this week, you could still give some of it for Christmas gifts. It's a pretty yeah. simple, easy thing to do. Um, I'm hopeful, hopefully I will create a problem for you. I can't guarantee that I will, but I would like to create a problem for you. So, you know, maybe you think you're going to get it by Christmas and then you get it in January because we create a problem for these guys. But, you know, guys, they're, they're out doing a good job. They're, they're working hard. They've been giving this a, a, a hell of a shot. I've had their product. It's solid. Uh, lots of you guys listen. So, you know, check out the website today. And if it, uh, if it loads slowly, that means we're creating a problem for you. Yeah, and also if you're in the uh, Des Moines, Iowa area, um, this weekend, um, uh, December 14th or 15th, whatever it is, Friday and Saturday, uh, we'll be at the downtown Winter Farmers Market, which is probably going to be our biggest event of the year. And um, so, yeah, definitely if you're in the area, um, you know, or at any time, say hi. I've actually um, met a few people from the show, actually, from, you know, having the Jack's Blend and, uh, you know, being on the business directory and so forth. So, yeah, definitely say hi if you're in the area. Well, all right, Ryan, man. I appreciate you being with us today. Uh, I wish you well. And like I said, hopefully we'll create a good problem for you uh, heading into the uh, Christmas season here. Yep, and uh, there's free shipping over $25 as well, too. Oh, then so. you got to buy four bags. That's, that's, there you go. That's brilliant. There you go. That's brilliant. There's $7 <laughs> a bag. You buy three. It's, <laughs> it, it's 21 bucks. you got to buy four and you, to go over. I, I love that. <laughs> well, well structured, sir. Again, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Again, guys, cool guy. Um, really like what he's doing. Been giving it hell for three years. <clears throat> Do a favor for me, man. Pick up some stuff from his shop today. And if you are MSB, get your discount that I negotiated for you. Again, get your 15% all products at reddragonherbs.com or .net. It's actually .net's the site. He did manage to get the .com, redirected it to the main site that's been up for a while. Little note, that's actually a very smart move. Um, if you ever end up doing that, you end up with a website and you, you can't get your .com. And one way or another, you manage to do it in the future because you feel it's worth doing. And you now want to use that domain. Either create a gateway page in a second site or just redirect it for word-of-mouth advertising. Don't give up the age on your site and the trust that it has with the search engine, specifically Google. And all the links that are out there and all that other good stuff. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Today, I want to remind you that if you do like this show and the work that we do, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. Doesn't matter what you buy. If you start there, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Uh, I've got a product for you today that I've reviewed and I've brought around many times, and I keep bringing it around because it works. It works so good, it's made my life better. Um, I was always big on making my own comfrey salve, but Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone is based on comfrey and has other herbs in it. works so well that I've pretty much switched to, to instead of making my own, I buy it. Uh, example of a value-added product. Um, my first introduction to this stuff was back when I, uh, I tore an MCL and LCL in the same knee. Um, and when consulted, a medical professional was told the only hope I really had was surgery. Uh, not wanting to have any of my body cut if I didn't have to. I began using this stuff. 
and was mostly recovered in a month and fully recovered in two. And it was a seriously bad injury. I, I actually, one time in my life, was in a wheelchair and rode a scooter. You know, like we went to the grocery store and I was on one of those little like old man scooters. Yeah, I mean, there's even a video somewhere of Dorothy videoing me using it in reverse, just laughing my head off because I can't believe I'm in a in a scooter. Uh, so it was significant um, and, and and quite painful. And uh, this stuff worked, and I've heard from numerous people that it worked. I woke up the other day. And I'd slept wrong or something, and I had really sore muscles in my back on my right side uh, to where I could barely move. I had Dorothy put some of this on me, and she goes, well, it's almost empty. I'm like, well, we have another tub of that, right? She goes, no, I used it. I'm like, uh, order more. Um, so because of that, I decided to bring it around today. Uh, again, this has sold hundreds and hundreds of, of tubs of this stuff to this audience. Uh, I have only heard good things about it, and I expected never to hear anything but good things about it. Uh, scrapes. Cuts, bruises, I mean, it's it's comfrey. So everything that comfrey does, uh, and then a little bit more with the other herbs that are included in it. It's a great formula. Uh, it definitely is Spirco-approved, Jack-approved product. Uh, check it out. Uh, Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone. You'll find the review at T-SPAS under the most current reviews under Herbal Medicine. We talked about herbs today, different way to use herbs. Uh, and uh, you can always find all my reviews there, alphabetically categorized. And you can always see like the deals of the day and always begin your shopping there. If you're going to shop online, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. That brings us to our song of the day. Um, like I said, I, I preempted almost all of John Adams' list this week for me. He's kind of my musical program director now, I guess. Um, and he had one song on, on Friday, and I won't tell you what it is until we get there. But it's a song that's a Christmas song, but it's not a Christmas song, but it's a Christmas song. And I thought, that's an interesting idea. Like, it's not something that people would carol with at a front door. It's not something that's generally in the rotation of all the radio stations playing Christmas music. Yeah, his is probably a little bit. Um, but it's not, when you think Christmas, it's not what you think. But then when you hear it, you go, that's a Christmas song. And I wouldn't it be cool to do other songs like that. They're Christmas songs, but they're not Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. They're not Oh Holy Night, what have you. And there's something unique about them, and maybe they're from an artist you wouldn't generally expect to think of at Christmas time. How about Jimmy Buffett? Jimmy Buffett has a Christmas song. It's called Christmas in the Caribbean. You know, I did Christmas in Dixie yesterday. I talked about how how that song really kind of brought me to a point in time of being in pine trees in the snow. Not just at Christmas time, just the winter anywhere where there's pines. And uh, it really did. And it, what, it, what that always made me think of is part of what this song makes me think of. Like whenever there's something that's strong, there's always the, the, the opposite thereof. So I spent um, two and a half years of my life in Panama and Honduras and went through three Christmases during that and saw no snow, no frost, no cold, no nothing. And part of me didn't miss, you know, being really cold. But not having any kind of seasonal change, it, it, it always made me felt separate and hard to get into that kind of, you know, Christmassy spirit type thing. I think part of it was also just not being in the United States and not being around the things that we think, think of typically for Christmas, little towns and lights at night and stuff like that. Um, but there was a Christmas spirit in Panama. I mean, Panama is primarily a, a, a Catholic nation, so there's both the secular and the uh, spiritual side of Christmas is heavily there in the population. 
But where we would end up finding it would be, you know, the, the days around the holiday when you got off a soldier, everything to be off duty, man. That's just extra day off duty, great. So around that time and hanging out in the Fort Clayton NCO club with our little bitty Christmas tree and uh, fitting some Christmas music in and stuff like that. Um, and kind of that memory is what I think of when I hear this song, Christmas in the Caribbean, because they've got everything but snow. Um, I think it's a cool song. You guys know I really love Jimmy Buffett and his music. So with that, here we go. Once again, guys, hope you enjoyed today's show. It's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Oh,